As we prepare to uh, get into the Word of God this morning, I want to build a little bit on what Philip said. Uh, Not only has that revival been great in Asbury, but it's spreading across the country. There are now approximately 15 sites on different campuses and cities where revival is taking place. And we're seeing things that we haven't seen before. And this week I heard or, or I read about the devastation of the earthquakes in Nepal, in India. And some of you may have seen the story by one of the rescuers. They removed a young boy who was, I think, eight years old, who had been in the rubble eight days underneath everything. And when they pulled him out, he looked remarkably well. And one of the rescuers said, how did you survive so long? He said, Well, when I was hungry, there was a man in white that gave me food. And when I was thirsty, he gave me water and told me everything would be okay. And that young boy was one of the few that they didn't even have to give medical help to. So we know Jesus is alive and well and he's working in ways and who knows, maybe we're the site of the next great revival. We need to be praying for that to happen. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, What's Love Got to Do With It? And I'm going to reflect again. I mentioned to you last week, I had two great mentors in seminary, Dr. Newell and Dr. Fred Craddock, who talked a lot about love. And a lot of the things that they said um, are just too good not to share with you. But I want you to notice that in your bulletin this morning, it doesn't say we're walking in the light of love. It says we're wailing in the light of love. Now... Judy called me last week all upset. She said, Curtis, I've printed all the bulletins and I've got a misspelling. misspelling." And she said, I'm wailing. And she said, and we're going to be wailing Sunday. And I said, well, we'll walk. But if we need to wail, that's good too because we need to know that God's present with us this morning. This morning, I want to read to you. Last week, we read from the, uh, the Message Bible. This morning, I want to read to you from the NIV. Now, some of you noticed, I saw some of you looking at this Bible when I came in. It's got duct tape on it. Now, this is one of my favorite Bibles. I wore one out, and then I got this one, and uh, duct tape can fix anything. I'd much rather see a Bible that is duct taped together, the pages are falling apart, that one, when you open it, the pages are stuck together. So use your Bible. Don't be afraid to use it, no matter how you are. But we're reading again in 1 Corinthians 13. This morning, I'm going to read to you from the NIV. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always preserves. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put my childish ways behind me. And now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So this morning we want to talk about walking in the light of love. Um, I want to talk particularly this morning of two of the phrases in, in verse 4 of the scripture. Love does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. And I want to begin by talking to you about pride. Because the first problem that we encounter is that pride often produces misunderstandings, right? Have you ever met somebody, we talked a little bit about this last week, that thinks they know it all, or knows they know it all? It doesn't matter what the topic is, uh, you've met that person, they can wax eloquently on and on about what they know and how smart they are and what they do. And they never listen, they, they don't listen to anybody else because they have all the answers. You may have heard the story about the minister, the boy scout, and the computer expert who were the only passengers on a small plane. And they were going through some turbulent weather and they saw that the engines went out. And the pilot came to the back and he said, he said, I don't know how to tell you this, I'm sorry, but he said, we're going to crash. The engines are gone. He said, and here's the problem, we only have three parachutes and there are four of us. And he said, look, he said, I'm a dad, I have three children, they all need me, so I think I should get one of the parachutes and he grabbed one and he jumps out of the plane. The computer whiz then stepped up and said rather proudly, I should have one of those parachutes because I'm the smartest man in the world. And the world needs me and people need me for my knowledge and what I can do. And he grabbed one and jumped out. The minister slowly turned to the Boy Scout with a sad smile and he said, look, young man. He said, you're young and I've lived a rich life, so you go ahead and you take that last parachute and I'm going to go down with the plane. Boy Scout looked at the minister and said, Relax, Pastor, the smartest man in the world just picked up my backpack and jumped out. <laughs> See, pride is an ugly thing, isn't it? And as this story illustrates, pride can get us in trouble sometimes. A lot of trouble. So we won't talk about pride, but then I'm going to come around and talk about humility. The humility that God expects of us. Whether we like it or not, pride is something that we all know about. Um, it's something that we've all felt at some point in our lives. Do you realize that pride is probably, or it is, the oldest sin in the world? In fact, it's a sin that even is older than the world and predates it. Because when you think about it, it was pride that caused Satan, who was the most beautiful angel of all, we're told, to sin against God. Pride is also what led Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of life. They were not content with the place that God had given them and the place he wanted them to have in life, the place that he assigned them. But they believed Satan when Satan told them they could be as God. You see, Adam tried to raise himself up. Instead, he fell. And when he fell, 
We know that sin, sorrow, and death enter the world because of his pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, Pride breeds quarrels. Causes arguments. It provokes us to get into arguments. If you put two people in the same room that know it all, what's going to happen? You have two irresistible forces fighting each other. You have two immovable objects that won't back down and they're not going to change their mind and they're not going to listen to what the other one says. And the arguments will go on and on and on, right? In Romans 12, 16, I like the way the Living Bible translation puts it. It says, don't try to be a big shot and don't think that you know it all. Truly, pride can provoke arguments in all of us. When it does that, pride prevents each and every one of us from having real fellowship. Uh, usually people who are too proud of themselves will not allow you to see them as they really are. That's the problem. They try to conceal their real self and they say things that they want to impress you with or they never allow you to see deep inside their hearts and their souls and the people they really are. Uh, they're, they're afraid that you will not love them for their real self. So they pretend to be something that they are not. Now over the years, in my ministry and, and through my counseling efforts, I've, I've talked with a lot of couples, worked with some people through some marriage counseling. But more times than not, I've heard something similar to this and people that have been in long-term marriages you know, we've been together a long time and we've loved each other a long time and we love each other now. But I really don't know who she or he is anymore. Sometimes it's difficult in relationships because we cover up and we try to be what people want us to be, not who we really are. And the scripture that Charlie read this morning, Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And that's a good verse. Because if we walk in the light, what happens if we walk in the light? Light reveals and light uncovers. And when we walk in God's light, everything is good. When you're living in the light of God, your life is much less stressful and it's much more focused. Somebody once said, you know, if, if you feel like God's not close to you anymore, God's never moved. He's there always by our side, and it's us that moves. And when we move out of his light, I don't know about you, but those are the times that I wish I could erase from my past. If we're all walking in the light of God, I, I don't have anything to hide from you anymore, and you don't have anything to hide from me. We can fellowship with each other as the Christians that God has called us to make. Pride inhibits our reconciliation. If people are proud, they're not usually willing to back down or to compromise in any way to find a common ground where they can agree with somebody. So reconciliation simply does not take place if we're too proud. I think if I name, throw out the name Cliff Barrows, most of you would know that. Some of you younger people might not recognize Cliff Barrows. But he was a minister, and he was a minister of music for the Billy Graham Crusades for, I 
I think 49 years, almost 50 years, was a very smart man, and he said this one time. He said, there are 12 words that are absolutely essential for a good marriage. And he said, those words are, one, I was wrong, two, I am sorry, three, please forgive me, and four, I love you. I've used that many times. He said, any relationship has to have those 12 words in it or it simply will not work. If you're in a relationship, any relationship, and if you aren't willing to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, or please forgive me, and if you can't admit that we love each other and desire to forgive each other, then reconciliation will never take place. It's no wonder that Paul said, love does not boast, it is not proud. So what's the opposite of pride? That's humility. Humility. We as Christians all have to be humble at heart. But even though we may decide that we need to develop humility, I don't think a lot of us know how to do that. I know I struggle with how to do that sometimes. Perhaps the greatest lesson about humility was taught to us by our Lord Jesus Christ when he gave us lessons on being humble. Throughout, through his whole ministry, there was never a question he was humble. But especially when he was brought before Herod, he humbled himself even unto death, we're taught. Now Herod was just the opposite. He was living it up. The people were claiming that Herod was a deity, and he just ate it up. Um, he was loving it. Now you can't get much more prideful than to think that you're a god or a deity. But Herod did. Today I think there are people in our society that see themselves and who trust in their own power instead of the power of God. I remember a quote several years ago from Ted Turner back when he was going strong with CNN and Turner Television Networks and all the others. One time in a speech, he said that Christianity is only for weak people. I think he had a serious pride problem. I think that pride comes into our lives whenever we take our eyes off of God. Whenever we lose sight of who whose and whom we are, we lose the fact that we are not humble and we become prideful. When we put our trust into something other than God, we become prideful. And that's why, I think that's why God looks at pride so severely. Pride is, think about this, Pride is nothing short of idolatry. Pride is bowing down to ourselves. Pride is when we give ourselves the honor which is truly only due to God. We try to become deities, whether we realize it or not, in what we do. We need to humble ourselves, and we need to admit that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We have to do that. We need to humble ourselves and admit that we cannot save ourselves, and that without the help of God, we are indeed helpless. There's another thing that we have to be careful of, and that's false humility. False humility happens when we submit ourselves, but we do not obey. False humility is when we submit to God and do the things that He requires for us to do, but we do them for our own glory. Not for His glory, but for our glory. Beware that you do not fall into the trap of false humility. 
True humility submits and obeys. True humility puts others before oneself. God honors the humble people. Do you realize that the, the first people that God invited to see the newborn King Jesus were the poor, the homeless shepherds? Now, I've been blessed to study and, and go to the Holy Land several times. And I learned something every time, but the first time I went, I learned this. Today, the shepherds of our society are the garbage men. Why? Because these people know they need to work. They know they want to care for the family. Shepherds are that way. They took the most demeaning job they had in the world. You and I don't want to be a shepherd. We don't want to be a garbage man. But these people humble themselves to do what they have to do and they serve in that manner. The entire gospel story is a call for us to, uh, to humble ourselves. And if you look through the Bible, you can look through that and you can see uh, we learn that God often humbled people before he made them great. A lot of lessons in the Old Testament. There are lessons in the New Testament. If you remember this, before Joseph became prime minister, what happened? He became prime minister of Egypt only after he had spent time as a slave and after he had been cast into an Egyptian prison. What about Moses? Before Moses, who grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, ever became the great deliverer and the great leader of Israel, he had to spend several years as a shepherd in the fields of Midian, a very humbling experience for him. What about the New Testament? Saul of Tarsus became the greatest apostle ever to the Gentiles and wrote many, if not most, of the books in the New Testament. And he had to humble himself on the Damascus road by a blinding flash of light from heaven and the voice of the resurrected Lord. King David, we all love King David, but he had to be a lowly shepherd before God lifted him up to be the leader and green and king that he was. So humility is very important in the lives of our love relationships. And yet, in today's world, humility is often disparaged. See, we're more concerned about feeling good about ourselves and being proud of ourselves and boasting about our accomplishments. Politicians brag about what they've done, and they assure you that if you will re-elect me, I'm going to do even greater things in my next term. Advertisers, and we don't have enough time to talk about all of them, but they say, look, I know this product is expensive, but you deserve the best today, so you go ahead and buy it. You, you deserve it. Now, we're not really a very humble people, and learning the lessons of humility does not come easy. But if we're going to try and have the love relationship that we're supposed to have with one another that God wants us to have, then we have to understand what Paul is saying when he says love does not boast. Love is not proud. And then we have to develop godly humility in our lives. Someone once said this, pride is a dangerous sin. It eats away at our soul. It convinces us that we are better than others. We deserve more and we are above the law. 
It convinces the powerful that they can do whatever they want. I truly believe that God's gift to us is the gift of a healthy humility. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death. Now you either humble yourself or God's going to do it for you. Let me tell you what happens when God humbles you. You may show up on the front page of the packet here in Columbus, right? Or your family and everyone in the neighborhood knows what you did and you're humiliated and you're brought low in your own house, in your neighborhood. So how much better is it to go ahead and humble yourself to God and say, God, please help me remember who I am and that my gift of life is from you, that anything good and ultimate only can come from you. God, help me to be the servant you have called me to be. Help me in times like this. Help me to treat people well through the love that you have commanded that we have for each other. I want to take just a brief moment and tell you about the four kinds of love, primary kinds of love, that are in the Greek language. The first love is agape. Now, agape love is all-encompassing. It's selfless. It's unconditional. It's like the love that God has for us. It's like Becky said this morning, agape love is immeasurable. You cannot put it in a little bucket. You can't contain it. It's like the little boy one time in a children's time that happened to a friend of mine. He was up and he was talking about God's love and how great God was and that God was in his heart. And he's so big that he loves the whole world. And the little boy tugged on his, his coat. He said, Mr. Rayford, Mr. Rayford. He said, what? He said, if God is that big and he's in my heart, why ain't he busting out? <laughs> now that's a sermon for a different day. But if he is that big, why isn't he busting out of our hearts if he's that important to us? So that's agape love. Then there's philia love. That's a strong friendship love. It's a love that you have for somebody that's a friend that you trust. You know they're not going to do you wrong. You know that they're not going to put you in a position of, of failure. Philia love. A love for, between friends. And then there's storge. That's the love of family. It's the love you have for your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and cousins. It's a different kind of love. And then there's eros. Eros is a romantic love. That's where we get the word erotic from. It's the love between a, a, a man and wife. It's the love that you share in that special relationship. And, and I, for years, I've preached on this. I think that we need to develop our vocabulary and our language because we need more than one word for love. Think about it. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my pets. I love my car. I love food. I even love my deodorant, right? <laughs> and there's one word, and that one word cannot express what we're really trying to say. Agape. That's the love we're to have for everyone. And that's the Greek word that is used in the scripture that we read and is translated out of this story. 
some kind, some people call it divine love because indeed it's the word that is used to express God's love for us. Again, it's an unselfish love, one that caused God to give himself so that we might be saved from sin in this world. That is agape love. My mentor, Dr. Newland, wants to find agape love by saying, he said, agape love moves you to help without expecting any reward. You do it because you're supposed to. You do it because you love me, and you do it because Jesus commanded. Um, our first reaction to that, I don't know about you, but my first reaction would be, that's not a big deal. I do a lot of nice things and, and without expecting anything in return. And I'd say, good, but is that really true? Because I think basically we're selfish people. Every time we do something, we expect something in return. At the very least, we expect to be uh, appreciated or get some recognition for what we've done. And if we don't get it, we say, well, I know when I'm not appreciated, don't we? Agape love is also the kind of love that parents have to use with their children sometimes. Um, when they go through difficult times, when a child declares, if you really love me, you will let me do what I want to do. And young parents, if you have not heard that, you will. If you love me, you're going to let me do what I want. No, that is not agape love. So when times are tough, when things could be going better, when you, um, when you just need somebody to be there for you, and when it seems like the world just doesn't care, have you wondered why folks just can't be a friend that you need, or at a minimum, treat you and their fellow man well? Of course you have. We've all been in those situations, and we've all wanted it. It's those times in life's most difficulties that we find out who our friends and family truly are. So today, as we head into our Lenten journey, which will begin on Wednesday, and will end not at the cross, but at the resurrection on Easter morning, ask yourselves if you are present when you're needed most. Are you there when people need you? Do you truly believe when God tells you you're supposed to have agape love for everybody? Now, you don't have to go up to your life to make a difference. Uh, all most people want in their time of need, sometimes even just a simple smile or a listening ear or a word of encouragement that will help them remember that you are special and that they are special to many people, but most especially to God. In John 15, 12, Jesus tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We're supposed to do that all the time, but we especially need to do that when people are in need. So you see, agape love can and will make a difference. It can make a difference in our families, in our neighborhoods, and ultimately in our nation. It's patient, and it's kind, and it does not boast, and it is not proud. And it can turn the world upside down. As people who are made in the image of God, the ultimate way that we become a better us is to grow closer to God and to His love. To allow His image to become clearer and clearer in, as I said earlier, 
who we are and whose we are. When we learn to love God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole strength and our whole mind, and love as Jesus loved others, it's then that we become better. You become a better you. And when you become a better you, it will affect anything and everything else in your life. And it will allow you to grow closer to God. And when you learn that the best you is the one that God loves first, and you love God most, you will truly understand what love got to do with it. So I want you to make that step this week. I'm going to challenge you to become the better you and remember that we are to love one another as Jesus loved us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.